Tonight we'll be in Matthew chapter 6, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, Matthew 6. Let's pray. Lord, we come together to you in prayer and ask for you to bless your word as we read it and study it. We pray that you give us everything you have. We want to have open ears, open hearts, and uh, we want to be ready to receive whatever you have for us. And, and we thank you for this, just, uh, just flat out telling us this is what you like and what you don't, and what's pleasing to you and how we ought to conduct ourselves as believers and followers of you. And so it help us to just take it all in. There's, there's not a bad word in the bunch, and so there's nothing we'd have to even filter. So we thank you for that, God. In Jesus' name, amen. God's word is good. It's always true. It's faithful. It's, it stands forever. Um, oftentimes the Bible is described as the, the anvil that's worn out many hammers. It just stands. And um, Jesus is in the middle of teaching his disciples on top of the mountain. It's, the, um, it's a famous sermon for him, chapters 5, 6, and 7. And we're right in the middle of that. And so you've got to kind of put yourself in that place. He's He's gone up on top of a mountain here, and he's, he's found a place to sit. And his disciples have all gathered around him just to, just to get away, you know, and to listen and just to sit at his feet and hear what he has to say. Now, they probably didn't, um, they didn't have the full gravity of the situation in front of them. They didn't realize that it was actually the Son of God, that it was actually God come in the flesh sitting there teaching them the creator of the universe, the one that knit them together in their mother's womb, sitting there and explaining to him, to them the things that were pleasing to him and the things he'd like to see from them. But we know that. As we sit here tonight in this, uh, in this room and have gathered here together on purpose to hear what God's word has to say for us, we can take absolutely every single word here and apply it to our lives tonight. And, and there shouldn't be any reason that we don't beginning tonight, knowing that this is coming from God himself. So last week, he, he hit on some, some topics, some, some things about sin, some things about what constitutes sin. It's not just the act of doing, but it's also the act of thought. But just the heart attitude towards that, even without the action, is still considered sin by God's standards. I, I don't even want you thinking that way. The, the fact that your heart goes there is something that I need to, as God, have to deal with that. And so he doesn't want that just swept under the rug, or at least he doesn't want anybody to feel any pride in the way they walk, even though they think these things, they don't do these things. He says, no, 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 I, I want to work from the inside out. I, I, I understand that you can stop yourself from committing these sins physically, but I want to get to the heart of the matter, literally. I want to change your heart. And that's what he spoke on last week. This week, it's about what to do. I like that. Just tell me what to do, you know. Just give me a direction. Just tell me that there's a mission and uh, what you want accomplished, and I'll go do it. Well, then he tells them. And it's a little different than what they'd think. Because everything they'd learned from the religious rulers, which is really what Jesus is up against, bad teaching before he got there. False teaching, teaching that was from man, traditions of men, the way men thought. And they twisted scripture and they made things out to, to look like God was like them. And so Jesus, God come in the flesh, comes and tells them, that's not what I meant at all when I wrote this. That's not what I meant at all when I spoke to you. This is what I meant. And so he's trying to straighten out bad doctrine. And I need that. We all do. We get ideas and perceptions of God. In fact, when we first get born again, when we first believed on Jesus for our salvation, we, we have a handle on everything. And as we grow in the Lord and grow older in the Lord and mature in the Lord and we read his word, those thoughts and assumptions tend to change. Oh, oh, I didn't know you, you thought like that. This first one's going to be really hard in chapter 6. Because there's two things I want to touch on. One is the actual event on what he's teaching, but I also want you to see it, how he taught. How Jesus, the, the, the master rabbi, which means teacher, taught. Okay. Verse 1, take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. 
Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. I think the first thing we need to understand is that Jesus is speaking to believers. Unbelievers will never understand this. But as believers who grew up in an unbelieving world and actually learned the habits of an unbelieving world have to change when it comes to this. This is an area that needs to be touched by God in our lives. When you do your charitable deeds, it's not to have your name put on the side of the building, but that's what the world does, you know? Or to be seen by men. In fact, when they would come into the temple and they would leave their tithe, the rich guys knew enough because they knew that if nobody saw them giving, that it didn't really profit them in their business life later on. They wanted to make sure that the world knew that they were very godly men and to see what I'm doing here so that later on they'll, they'll recoup some of their losses, which is how they saw it. And so they blow the trumpets, let everybody know beforehand, and then the money gets poured in. And they'd always pour in the coins, you know, make that sound. Oh, you know, that guy, that was a bucketful there. Even though they're pennies, you know, or whatever, but it's a bucketful of money. It sounded like a lot of money to me. Good for him. Who was that? Who was that guy? Who was that guy? I don't know. It's Bob. He owns the rug shop, you know. I buy my rugs from him. That's a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite, he says. Don't do that. Do it so that your left hand doesn't even know what your right hand's doing. Now that's impossible, but you get the idea. He was Jesus was really funny when he taught, you know. You can just see him. He, he liked to say, behold the sower, or, you know, hey, Peter, go fishing and grab a fish, and inside the mouth you're going to find a coin. That's how you're going to pay your tax. He's very, you know, flamboyant that way when it came to teaching. He really wanted to drive the point home. Whose image is on this coin? If it's Caesar's, then render under Caesar. What's Caesar's? He'd, uh, he liked doing that. So you can see him stand, or sitting there probably say, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing, you know, acting it out. And the crowd kind of saying, well, that's, I get it. Do it secretly. Now, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, we have the exact opposite. That was just last week. He said this about giving or doing your works. He said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So which is it, Jesus? It's the same teaching. He literally says, I want you to do it in such a way that men can give glory to God when you do your good works. Later on, don't let anybody know what you're doing when you do your good works. Wait a minute. Uh, it's, it's simple. You don't have to get too caught up in it. Let me read the very first line to you of tonight's teaching. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. You can still do your charitable deeds before men, just don't do it to be seen by them. That's the difference. Sometimes you can't help it. Sometimes you've got to do something and someone's going to catch you doing it, but you can't, you can't not do it because you're afraid someone's going to see you. I think you do your best to make sure that you don't get your kudos from men, your pats on the back, because Jesus says clearly that's all you're going to get for that act. There's no points in heaven for that one. You've got your reward. But if you do it in such a way that it's not to be seen by men, then you're going to have a reward from your Father in heaven. And that's the key. He's got to be your Father for this stuff to apply. You have to have a daughter-father relationship or a son-father relationship with God. That's how this stuff works. Now, he calls them hypocrites. Mark chapter 12, verse 41 says this. Now, Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury. This is that tithe thing I was talking about where the rich men would blow trumpets and pour their buckets of coins in. And many who were rich put in much. So all of his guys are watching. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which makes a quadrans, which is nothing. It's like a little coin. So he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow was put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they all put out of their put it out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had, 
her whole livelihood. I love that story. It's one of my favorites because she has no idea that the creator of the universe was watching her. And you know how meek and humble you would be knowing that culturally speaking, the guys pouring in the buckets were the big boys and you were in the way as a widow with a couple mites. So you just kind of put your stuff in and get out of the way for the next guy with buckets. You kind of knew that. You were treated like that. Those guys got the best seats in the synagogue. You with the two mites, widow over there against the wall. These guys paid for these seats, you know. And to have the creator of the universe be watching and saying, ooh, did you guys see that? That was amazing. Like, ooh, what? What are you talking about? That woman with the two mites. That's everything she had. How does he know that? Because he's the creator of the universe. Of course he knows that. But nobody else knew that. Nobody else knows the heart. Nor did she make it a point to let everybody know, I'm giving all that I have left. You know? She just did what she did because it was pure of heart. And Jesus notices that. He loves pure of heart. You can do your stuff in front of men. In fact, do it. Be a light into this world, but not to be seen or not to crave that glory and take it from God. How do you do that? It's a heart issue. You can't. There's no physical way to do chapter 6 and 5 in such a way that your flesh doesn't get in the way. Your flesh has to be dealt with or you cannot accomplish this. He is giving an impossible task. I want you to give in such a way that everybody sees you, but you take none of the glory. I mean, I'll try, but it's hard. You drop it in, hey, that was, that was a lot of money. I'm so glad you helped those people out. Thank you, thank you. Oh, wait, you know, shoot. How do you do it? You've got to have a new heart. You've got to be born again. You've got to have Christ give you that heart to where it's like, whatever, you know. Now, the second thing I want to, well, let me do this other cross-reference. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. Paul writing to the Corinthian church, but this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God is, loves a cheerful giver. God is able to make all grace abound towards you that you always have all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance in every good work as it is written. Now listen, here's the point of this, why I'm doing this cross-reference, as he just said your reward is from God, this is that reward. This is how it works. It's, it's almost mechanical. I mean, it's not, but it's almost a law. You do this with a cheerful heart, and God knows all that you're doing. He doesn't need to be explained to. Nobody else to see it. He, he doesn't need a trumpet. He's watching. Verse 9, as it is written, he has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now, may he who supplies seed to the sower... In other words, the one sowing this wonderful good deed in somebody else's life, you know where that seed came from. It came from God. The fact that you have any money in your wallet came from the Lord anyway, so it's really hard to be prideful. Say, hey, here you go, you know. Well, Jesus was doing that to you earlier, and that's why you're able to take that and do that. That's, you know, so you can't take credit, you can't take glory, or you shouldn't. You're passing it on. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, the supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. While you were enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. For the administration of this service, this act of giving, this ability to worship by giving and being a blessing to other people, not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. While through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men. And by their prayer for you who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. This explains it to us. It's a, this is what we do. God says, I've got a lot of poor people on the earth and I've got a lot of money. Now, I want to give it to them, but I want to give it to them through you. So here's all I have. Now, let's see what happens. And those that do it and are obedient and are a hose and not a damned up 
well or a you know a, a pond, you know, and don't let the water come back out. It just flows, and they're all, oh, thank you, God, that was just the right timing. Thank you for that. It's working, you know. Imagine God's monetary system, like a, the hydraulic system that we have in this world. You got the clouds that come and they rain on everything. But some of that rain finds its way to the streams and it finds its way to the ocean and it evaporates back up into the clouds and it goes like that. And that is the idea. It's supposed to be a flow. It's supposed to be. That's a healthy, healthy, healthy Christian. It's hard to talk about money without having people, especially at church, because it's been taught just It's just bad doctrine out there about giving. Giving is worship. The same thing he says here about doing these things in secret, he's going to move right on into prayer. The way you pray is worship. The way you give is worship. The way you do good works or charitable deeds for other people is an act of worship to God. And if that isn't evident in my life, then I'm missing an act of worship, and I'm not a part of that cycle that God wants us to be a part of. I encourage you to read that Corinthians passage uh, over and over again. It really does, I mean, explains this right here. It's in 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 15. Uh, Aaron will put it up and put it in the comments section, but so important. Now, the second thing I wanted to hit on this, which I didn't, because that's, that's what he taught, and that's all we need to know tonight, was that I want you to see how he taught, how he taught. Because if he was to sit in this room tonight, which he technically kind of is in his word. His word is here. He's present to or more gathered. We just prayed that. He's here and he's teaching us his word. This shouldn't offend anybody, but he's pretty rough. I don't know who's in the crowd sitting around him on top of this mountain, but it could be some of the hypocrites. Some of the people that used to blow the trumpet. That's embarrassing. What if, culturally speaking, you were the guy who would do that because that's what you've always done your whole life? We do that. You blow the trumpet. Dad blew the trumpet. I blow the trumpet when I tithe. And then my kids, I'm teaching my kids to blow the trumpet when they tithe. And they pour the money in and everybody cheers and we all walk into church. That's just what we do. Not even knowing that that's inappropriate or wrong or offensive to God or makes anybody else feel bad. It's just kind of how we worship. We've always done that, right? And so you're sitting in this crowd because you want to know the Messiah like everybody else, and you're sitting there, and you're man, his teachings are great, aren't they? I mean, these are the best ever. I mean, I've never been so, ah, oh, just amazing. Oh, I just love listening to him. I'm going to follow him around. He's getting in a boat. I'm going to run around the, the lake and catch him on the other side. I mean, they would do that. These disciples were just amazing and loved him. But imagine you're the guy sitting there, and all of a sudden this teaching comes up. And you know that you're sitting around your buddies and all the buddies who don't have that money and don't blow the trumpet because they only put in a couple bits. And and then those hypocrites who blow the trumpet and you get a couple elbows in your ribs. Now you have a choice to make. I've loved the teaching. I've loved the teaching up until it touched me right where it hurts. A moment that needs to be changed in my life. And Something that's embarrassing. I can't believe they said that out loud. I can't believe that that was so pointed. I can't believe he was so rough. I can't believe he actually called me a hypocrite in front of everybody. You know? And he didn't. He was just describing the act and the shoe fit. And that's offensive when the shoe fits when we're going in God's word. So he has a, Bob has a choice. Does he, does he continue listening to the teachings of Jesus or does he walk away offended because the word of God touched him in such a way that it, the shoe fit? I don't want to go to church and make sure the shoe never fits me. I don't want to sit there and move from church to church. Whenever the shoe fits, I find another fellowship or I find another teacher because that guy was too offensive and he's too rough and just, I don't know, terrible. No. This is what we want. I mean, we get into God's Word together and we study it because we want to know where we're off. Because we don't know until He tells us that we're off. And if I'm off, I'm off. If I'm humble, then I accept that. If I'm prideful, I cancel Jesus. You know? We have to be careful that when we come to the Word of God that we let the God's Word judge us and that we're not a judge of God's Word. Always, always, always. Verse 5. Moving on to prayer. 
when you pray. You shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in, secret, in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. There's another guy in the crowd who just thought that's what you do. That's how you show piety. As you stand in the corner and you pray out loud, because you're not ashamed to pray out loud. I'm going to pray out loud. I'm going to pray. And all of a sudden he starts to, you know, you don't be, that's me. I want you to do it quietly. There's nothing wrong with praying out loud. It's just doing it to be seen, doing it to be better than other people, doing it to make yourself puffed up in their eyes, inflated, you know. He says, I don't want you to do that. So when you pray, he says, do not use vain repetitions as the heathens do. In other words, those repetitive prayers. I'm not going to give you an example, but we all know there are many examples out there of repetitive prayers in churches. Now, that isn't to because you know what it's like when you first start praying out loud, and if you haven't prayed out loud, you'll do this, and it's normal. Everybody does it. And you'll say, Father God, and I just, you know, Father God, my Father God, and I don't know, Father God, I just think this other thing, Father God. And so that's not how you talk to somebody. Can you imagine that, Sam? And then the other day, Sam, I was over there at your house, Sam, and I was in the car, Sam. And then, Sam, I tell you what, Sam, okay, you know. But you do that because you're, you're nervous and you're out loud and you know other people are listening, so you're careful. And God, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about if I do this enough times, if I repeat this enough times, it'll be true. It'll happen. Or God will be pleased. He, he says very clearly, when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as heathens do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Not true. He says, therefore, do not be like them, for your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. So pray in this manner. In other words, before I even open my mouth in prayer, God already knows my heart, my mind, and exactly what I'm going to say. He just, he's that way. The only reason I pray or say things out loud, because that'll be the next question, then why do it at all if, he already, if he's got it? You know, because prayer is for us to get lined up with him. Prayer changes us. So pray, yes, but pray this way, Jesus says, when you pray. And this is an example. This prayer we're about to read is an example of how to pray. It's not the prayer. This is not the Lord's prayer. In fact, it's not at all. Later on, we have the Lord's prayer where he actually prays to his father in the garden. That's the Lord's prayer because he prayed it. This is not it. He says, when you pray, pray like this. And it's short and it's sweet and it's to the point and it gives God all the room he needs to do whatever he wants to do. And it corrals me to do exactly what he wants me to do. You see, our father in heaven. So first of all, he's got to be your dad. He has to be, you have to have that relationship with him. Otherwise, it's falling on deaf ears. Our Father in heaven, not my Father in heaven, our Father in heaven, hallow or holy be your name. I pray that's hallowed in my life. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not sin to want heaven on earth. I'm not a kingdom now theology guy, nor should we be. We cannot establish God's kingdom so that he returns. A lot of people believe that. A lot of very famous people believe that in, in the Christian faith. That if we can just get things straightened out and legalized down here, then he can come. We establish his kingdom, and now he can sit on his throne. That's not what God's word tells us, but they believe that. But it doesn't also mean that I don't want... God's will on earth. I want peace. I want, I want orphanages no more because parents love their kids and want to raise them. You know, I, I, nobody, there shouldn't be any uh, women's shelters because men don't beat their wives anymore, you know, kind of thing. I want that on earth. And I pray that way. I pray for the poor. We pray for these things. I want God. And so we're taught to do that. I pray that your will is done here on earth. Always. And we can't apologize for that. A lot of people don't want God's will done here on earth. Many, many, many people don't. And they'll make you feel like you're closed-minded for only wanting God's will done on earth. I am closed-minded when it comes to that. 
I only want God's will done on earth. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Another translation says sins. And I'll explain that here in a minute. It gets pretty serious, but just enough food for today. That's all I'm asking for. I just want to be able to eat today. And then would you forgive us our debts just like I forgive our debtors? Now, he's saying that because he knows how hard that is to pray. That would never come out of my mouth unless he had said that right there. I would have just left it with, forgive me my sins. I would never have added the way I forgive other people. But he adds that on there to obviously teach us something. I want you to forgive people just like I forgive you. And I'm going to forgive you just like you forgive other people. Oh, (laughs) oh. Now, if Jesus was sitting in this room, we'd all be on our faces right now because we love him. We think he's great. We love him so much. He loves us so much, right? And, and he is in this room. He tells us, so we just can't see him. If he was to sit here and say, I want you to forgive everybody that's ever hurt you like I've forgiven you, what would you do? Would you roll screaming from the room, you know? You know? This is what's pleasing to me. I want you to forgive everybody the same way I've forgiven you. And if you don't like it that way, how about I forgive you the way you've forgiven everybody else in your life? Ooh. That stings after, what, I've been saved 30 years now? That still stings after 30 years when I read that. I like to skip that sometimes. Hmm. I don't think I've, I don't know if I'll ever get good at that. I want to get good. I think I'm better at that. But I don't have that yet. I'm better. I don't, want, I don't want to beat myself up too much, but I'm not. I'm not there yet. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Short and sweet. There it is. Verse 14, he elaborates because he knows everybody's going, wait, what did you say about forgiveness? You could see the whole crowd going, say that again. That second part stands a whatever. For if you forgive the men, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father in heaven, or Father, forgive you your trespasses. What? And that's the that is the reaction it's supposed to have. He is teaching them a whole new level of walking with God. They knew a level of walking with God. They understood it. Some of them had even mastered that level of walking with God, the cultural expectations of what it looked like to be a faithful follower of the true and living God. We knew we're not like Hitler. They had a new name. At least we're not like Caesar, you know, or whatever. They want, you know, we're not like Nero. And that was their level, just like we say today. Well, at least I'm not Hitler. Well, that's not the standard still. He just throws that out there. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. There's no way to teach that and explain it away. It is what it is. Now, I have, we have Scripture that tells us that my sins were paid for, past, present, and future. Because Jesus died on the cross for my sins. But for me to not forgive people is one of those sins that nailed him to the cross. It's not okay. I remember when I first got saved, I was probably maybe a year old in the Lord, and the same guy that led me to the Lord, I, I asked him a question. We were studying this or something similar to this. And, I, and I'm doing gymnastics in my mind because that's what I do as a lawyer. You know, in your mind, you're, Every one of us is a lawyer to some extent. We try to find loopholes. And I sat there, I said, so what if they don't ask for forgiveness, though? Do I have to forgive someone that doesn't ask for forgiveness? You know, thought I'd, I thought I'd won. He goes, I don't know. Have you forgotten about any sins that you've committed? Have you asked God for forgiveness for all of your sins? What if there was one you missed? Shut up, Brian, you know? <laughs> he was good. Brian Spafford was good. He had answers for everything. Uh, biblical ones, too. There's no way out of this one. We've got to forgive people. Have to. That means you're not going to hold them account. You're not going to seek retribution. You're going to forgive them. You're never going to bring it up again. You're not going to keep a list. You're not going to build up a case. 
You're going to let it go, and it's never coming up because you forgave them. Now, if they do something else, that's something else you have to forgive them for. But you cannot tie those two things together because that one is forgiven. You can never bring it back up again. Your marriage will be wonderful if you do that. Wonderful. Don't keep track. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Verse 16. Moreover, when you fast, now we're moving on to fasting. We've covered giving, we've, our charitable deeds could be giving, could be helping somebody out, whatever. Um, prayer, and now uh, we're moving on to fasting. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is, in, who is in the secret place and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. If you're truly doing it for God, do it completely for God so that nobody else knows you're doing it is the idea for any one of these three things. And God receives that. He'll receive that from us. Um, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Very simple. That was a, that's a hard one to explain. They would have rooms of gold or a bag of gold or a chest of gold, depending on how much money he had. You know, some didn't have any, but a lot of people had a pretty good savings account back then, and that's what they would do. You know, they'd have fine apparel that was worth something, and it was increasing in value because for the color purple or the color red or something like that was valuable, whatever it may be. Well, with the gold, they would count it and weigh it every year, sometimes four times a year. Quarterly, they would do this. And they would depreciate it, not in value because of because the markets or anything like that, but because rust and corrosion took away their fortune. So you'd, you'd weigh this one pound of gold that was a pound last year, you know, and, and, and now it's, it's 15 ounces. Oh, man, where'd that ounce go? Did someone steal from me? No, it's just corroded on the edges. You know, you're losing gold. And can you imagine? You've got a room full of gold, and you're lying in there in bed as this super rich guy, and you're just thinking, I am just losing money. It's just rotting as I lay here. It's disappearing. It's falling apart. All this value is gone. And he brings that up. Jesus just gets right to it. Moth and rust are destroying your valuables right now. Everybody knows that, right? I've never bought a car that doesn't just like fall into disrepair and it's a horrible and now it's the chore truck or whatever it is, you know. It's not the same value. Drive it off the lot, brand new car, what do they say? It loses 20% value right there on the spot. Ugh. I don't know if that's true or not, but it makes you sick to your stomach. It's supposed to. So he says, instead of doing that, lay up your treasures in heaven where moth and rust doesn't destroy Invest in people. That's where your investment is. We spend so much time worrying about retirement. <laughs> Retirement's like, I don't know how long you're going to live. Some of you might not even make it. I saw a funny, funny post today. It says, yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm about to work right up to lunch on my funeral day. <laughs> I'm only going to take a half day on my funeral. That's how much I've got to wear. I was like, I like that a lot. <laughs> I could take a half day. I'm dying. Yeah. It's all I can afford. We worry so much about that short amount of retirement time. You know, work, 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 save, 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 so I can stop working. And then what do I do? I just spend the money that I worked for all that time, you know, or whatever. I, don't, I really don't know. I don't know what the plan is for retirement. I don't think there is. I don't see anything in, in the Bible about retirement. There's nothing in it, you know. I think when you retire, you're just changing careers. You're doing more things. You're doing other things. Maybe you're more uh, philanthropic or, you're, or you're, you're helping charities or you're you, you just move. You change your... But Jesus is like, I want you to think beyond this life. You worry from the time you were born until the time you die about this. I want you... This is nothing. It's a blip. It's a breath. It's a vapor. He describes this life as, this is nothing compared to the eternity we're preparing you for. That's what's... Ma this is what matters. This is, this is retirement. 
death is the beginning of your retirement. That's when you spend forever. You move into your mansion that I prepared for you. I come and bring you to that place. I'm taking care of you. You'll never have to hunger or thirst again. There's never going to be any more sorrow or death or crying or tears or nothing like that. It's just it's retirement. It says, I want you to spend your life down here now planning for that. Not the 15 years you're going to have, you know, getting more and more crippled up as you get older. Store your treasures there in heaven. And he is literally talking about finances. He's talking about make sure that you're not just storing it up in barns and use it. Use that money, you know. Use the things. Leave your kids an inheritance for sure. The scriptural is for that also, but spend it wisely. Use it for God. For where their treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that's the point. An inheritance, where's your heart? It's for the kids. Um, for helping someone out, getting a house or an apartment or something like that, where's your heart? It's for people. Let me see. That's the idea. Make sure your heart is right. And when your heart is right, these things come into play. It's not even a thought to you about your well-being or how you're going to recover from this. It's about them. Verse 22. The lamp of the body is, is the eye. That's how we get all of our light into our body. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. In other words, if you can see, you don't have cataracts, you don't have you know, any kind of blindness or whatever. You can see and you, you can gain so much from that. It's a, truly a blessing and a privilege to be able to see. It's a wonderful thing God's given us. And it does supply us with all that light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore that light or the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? It's a little poetic, a little cryptic, but it's not very hard. Jesus often uses it as a metaphor. Blindness is a metaphor. Open the eyes of the blind, but he's talking about spiritual blindness. I've, I've had relatives that have had cataracts. Maybe you've had cataracts before, and it's a cloudy film that begins to form over your lens, and they, they can clean that off in most cases or do a small surgery that makes it you know, clear again like it's supposed to. Think of it like plastic that you leave out in the sun that kind of turns yellow. That's basically what happens to your lens. It gets kind of cloudy and you can't see as well. And that's what he's saying. And if you, that, that is left unattended, you'll be get darker and darker. And all of a sudden you're not getting what you used to get. You're blind, basically. You can't receive that light anymore. It can't come into your eye. It can't explain things to you visually. That's what he's saying. Spiritually speaking, if you're blind, you're not getting it. You're, you're so full of darkness that... The way you remove that is being born again to, to be spiritually awake, to no longer be spiritually blind, to have spiritual sight. And it changes everything when you look at the world through God's lens. And all of a sudden, everything makes sense. There's light, there's colors, there's, oh, there's eternity. I get it all. I can see I can see the sin nature, and I can understand why Christ had to die, and everything begins to come into shape, and you have light in your life. But if you don't have that, and before you became born again, you were in darkness. None of it made sense to you. Why is the world like this? Why do people act like this? Why can't people just be nice? The humanists still believe that in our core, we're good, and we just need to find that goodness and bring it out. That's not true. The Bible teaches the exact opposite of that. Within us, in our core, is a sin nature that has to be dealt with and can only be dealt with by Jesus Christ giving us a new heart. We need a transplant. It's corrupted. Some scriptures to go along with that. Isaiah 59, verse 10, we grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as at twilight. We are as dead men in desolate places. He's describing the nation of Israel, the prophet is, and how they're just wandering around still, just groping. They're blinded spiritually. Acts 17, 26 through 28. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. And has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord, 
in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. The whole world, whether they know it or not, are groping for the solution. They're groping for the light. They're groping for Jesus Christ. They're looking around, feeling and trying to figure it out. And some are stuck on this thing or that thing, but they're, they're still blind. They still can't see. Romans chapter 1, verses 20 through 22. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. And this is the most tragic blindness of all. It's choice. Even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Those are the ones that are blind because they close their eyes. Can you imagine if someone walked up to you and says, I can't see, I can't see. Open your eyes. No, no, I can't see. I don't have pity for you then. Open your eyes. It's as simple as opening your eyes. It's your choice. And that's what's happening. God has clearly made himself available to be seen. He can be seen in everything, but they know that he's there, and I don't want to know that, so I'm shutting my eyes to him. And they darken their heart by closing their eyes. They won't let that light in. It's a choice. Professing to be wise, they became fools. So he moves on. Um, no one can serve two masters. For either you will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or riches. He's big on the money thing tonight. He's hitting that a lot, hitting that hard. Because the rich folks of the day ruled. They were thought they were better. Everybody understood they were better because you wouldn't be poor if you were as great as he was, is the idea. So rich or poor, the rich were better. So if you were poor, that's how it was. He's saying you cannot serve two masters. Now, he's not saying I don't want you to be rich because there's a lot of rich people that did a lot of good with their money. Nothing wrong with that. You can't serve riches. Many people try to serve God, but also serve their riches. And riches were never meant to be served. It's a very poor God. Our money is a very poor God. Our assets are very poor at helping us if we're serving them. But they can serve us, is the idea. That's all they're for. The assets that God has given to us are to serve us, not the other way around. They're used in our bidding. We serve God and we make our money or our assets serve us. You cannot serve both, he says. It's impossible. Verse 25, therefore I say to you, do not worry. This is the big worry thing. He's telling them not to worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? I mean, you know, can't get taller by worrying about being short. I worry about being short. I like to wear heels. See? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the, of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? I don't want you guys to worry about that. Everybody in that crowd worried about that stuff. Everybody sitting there worried about that stuff. Nobody stood up and said, I got that one down. Every one of them worried about, what am I going to eat? Where am I going to live? How is this going to go? What about my money? I don't know, but they're all worrying about this stuff. And he's trying to alleviate them of that burden that they're carrying by telling them that's a choice you're making. That's a decision you're doing in your own heart. You're choosing to worry about these things. I'm telling you, as God come in the flesh, Jesus says, you don't have to worry about those things, but you choose to worry about those things. But you don't have to. And so he tells them specifically, don't worry about those. Don't worry about your life. Don't worry about my life? Mm -mm. Don't worry about their food. Don't worry about my food. Don't worry about your drink. Mm. Don't worry about your clothing. I saw another article about a woman who wore the same dress for 100 days in a row. 
100 days. She goes, you know what? My life didn't change a bit. I'm never buying clothes again. I thought that was funny. I was like, okay. I don't know that I wear it 100 days in a row, but good for you. She says, I'm going to see what happens to my life. If I wear the same dress 100 days in a row, am I going to be thought of less? Will I think of myself less? Will my job suffer? Will my family suffer? She just wore them 100 days in a row. She goes, I look like a cartoon character because I was wearing the same clothes every single day. And she goes, you know what? Nothing changed. Nothing changed. I was the same person. That's an epiphany for some people. And this is what Jesus is trying to bring them, trying to relieve you of these worldly cultural things that have been put on you by everybody else around you. And you don't have to worry about that stuff. I want to take that from you. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 5 through 7, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Be anxious for nothing. Proverbs 12, 24 through 26. The hand of the diligent will rule, but the lazy man will be put to forced labor. Anxiety in the heart of man causes depression, but a good word makes it glad. The righteous should choose his friends carefully, for the way of the wicked leads them astray. Now, I put all three of those together because sometimes Proverbs is, seems like a, like a standalone card that have been all put together, you know. But I think the ones that bookend this, anxiety in the heart of man causes depression, but a good word makes it glad. The verse before and the verse after, I think, really tie in. The hand of the diligent will rule, but the lazy man will be put to forced labor. In other words, get up and work. That'll help your anxiety and your depression. And then the verse afterwards, the righteous should choose his friends carefully for the way of the wicked leads them astray. Stay away from those people and that will help your anxiety. You don't worry so much about being busted if you're not hanging out with the people that get busted all the time. You're not worried about money because you're out there working. You know, work. It helps. And finally, let's finish up. Therefore, do not worry saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. So not only don't do that, but do do this. James is very careful about that. When you read the book of James, he not only tells you what God doesn't want you to do, but he tells you what to replace that with. Don't do that, but do do this. Don't leave a void. Don't just not do it. I want you to not do it, but then I also want you to fill that time that you would have been doing that with doing this. So in other words, don't worry. I don't want you to do that like the Gentiles do about all these things. Here's what I do want you to do. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. The things you would worry about will be taken care of as I seek God's righteousness in my life. Because my, God's righteousness and his holiness and the purity of my life causes me to get up in the morning and work hard. All of a sudden, money starts flowing in because I'm the hardest working person at my job. Because I love God. Because I'm seeking righteousness. And I don't lie to my boss. And I don't try to get out of doing stuff. And I don't say that's not in my job description. And I'm not a mouthy guy. When I truly am acting like Christ around people, they're like, why can't all of you be like this guy right here? Now you're the teacher's pet, but you can't worry about that. You're God's pet, you know? I just, I live for God. And all of a sudden, it's, there's blessing upon blessing in my life. Because people want godly people around them. They don't want your morality, but they love your work ethic. They love that you're not mouthy, that you're not prideful, that you're not ambitious in the sense that you try to step over other people, but you're humble and you receive instruction, and I can correct you without you giving me a funny face or calling me a name behind my back when I'm not around. I know you're not going to undermine me. I know you're not going to backbite me. You're great. I can use this. And all of a sudden, things start flowing when we seek his righteousness in our lives. So yeah, don't worry about those things, but do do these things. Be godly. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. 
You got enough going on today. Can't worry about the rest of it. Last cross-reference, and then we close. Proverbs 3, verses 1 through 10, I believe encapsulates everything we just studied. My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commands. For length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. It's exactly what we just studied. And this was written hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus gave this sermon. He's not telling us anything new. He's just saying it in a different way. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This world was always designed to be enjoyed like a garden that we could go out and just be with God and he'll take care of us. It's always been like that. But we messed it up in the very beginning. And God is forever trying to get us back to that place. Will you just walk with me in the cool of the day? Will you talk with me? Will you reason with me? Will you spend time with me? I'll take care of everything else. Just like before. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. You're so faithful. You're so loving. You wanted to relieve people, all these people of their burdens. Your burden is easy. Your yoke is light. You said, come, put it on you. I'm light. I'm easy. So we thank you for that. This world does nothing but stick rocks in our backpack. That's all it does. Rock after rock after rock. And you've called us to just, just put the backpack down. Don't play by that. Follow you, to trust in you. And so, Lord, tonight we do that. We give you our hearts, we give you our lives, we give you our actions, not just our thoughts and our words, and our, but we also give you our deeds. Help us to be like you on this earth, unentangled with this life, with the things this culture wants to put on us, unencumbered, Lord, to, to run with you, Lord. Help us to be high-speed, low-drag Christians, Lord ready to go at a moment's notice, close to you, fixed on you, in love with you, meditating on you, spending time with you, growing with you, and just flat out being like you, kind, generous, loving, long-suffering, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, all these things that come from knowing you and being with you, filled with your spirit. Lord, bless these folks as they go tonight, Lord. Bless our kids. Bless the teachers that have taken the time to study and prepare a lesson for them and to give them your word. We pray that you bless those teachers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need prayer before you go, please come up. Be glad to pray with you. Otherwise, have a, a chilly weekend.